Okay, 2 Timothy chapter 1, and this evening we'll be in verses 1 through 7. 2 Timothy 1, 1 through 7. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, In Christ Jesus, our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that Dwell first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Lord, As we read and hear these words, we know that it was a letter written to a dear friend, but Lord, it also has been inspired by you, and it's included here in sacred scripture for us and our benefit, Lord. So we ask that you would use this text and you would guide us into worship here this evening as we think about these words as we pray about these words, as we consider Paul and the ministry that Timothy had there in Ephesus, Lord. Lord, we know that the ministry that goes on here is not different or unique in what we do. We look back to the apostles and their leading and guiding. So we pray that as instruction is given to Timothy, that we would receive it as instructions for us ourselves as well, Lord. And to this end, we pray in your name. Amen. Second Timothy, if you're unaware, is most likely the very last letter that we have written from Paul. He's in prison at this time. We'll see that when we get to the end in chapter 4. He talks about people who have left and abandoned him in his ministry. He talks about needing certain things in his imprisonment that he asks for Timothy to bring. And he mentions other people coming to visit him. But this is the end for him. This is, as it were, his swan song. And as a swan song should be, This is one of the most personal letters that Paul writes. He gets very intimate with Timothy here. We see that right away when he begins talking about Timothy's family and and remembering how wonderful they had treated Paul and how they had treated him or Timothy had treated him as well. We see that he opens up with a confident standing upon his apostleship. That, that, that's hard to do throughout life, to stand on the calling that you've been given. Because there is some sense where 
it, it is subjective. A lot of our faith is not subjective. Here it is, black and white, in Scripture. We go to it regularly and routinely to find guidance and leading for our lives. But the call of God on a man or a woman serving in the church is not nearly as objective. We can't go to a verse and find Arthur ought to be serving in the youth ministry, yea, verily, verily, kind of thing, right? What we do find is we find these big overarching principles, and as we look to these principles, we are encouraged to see how the Lord would lead and guide us, and tonight we're going to see just that. In fact, the bulk of what we're going to look at is how can we know our calling? How can we, as he uses the phrase in verse 6, fan it into flame? But Paul begins his epistle with a confident assurance of his own apostleship. Here he's at the end of his life. He, he doesn't have, there's no pretense. He's not, you know, needing to necessarily dial it down a couple notches for humility's sake. He's talking to his dear friend who he's loved for multiple decades, who's been with him serving in and out of the churches that they've been in. And he says these words, I am an apostle by the will of God. That is bold. That's about as bold as it gets. We have many people in our day and age who want to make this same claim. There are still people who do that. Even in our town, there was this guy a few years ago. He was the apostle of Chico. And he'd go around to churches. And I remember getting one of these little packets from this ministry. Wanting him to come and speak here. And wanting him to say his apostolic words to us or whatever. And of course, I threw that quickly in the garbage. And... Um, because the apostles, they were needing to be eyewitnesses of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. According to Acts chapter 2, that's the qualification for an apostle. That they served as the Lord served during his ministry, and they had been witnesses of his resurrection. And of course that ended very early on at the end of the first century with the apostle John. But here he says he's an apostle by the will of God according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. The foundation of any call of God is the promise of life in Christ Jesus. The foundation of any call of God upon a person is the gospel, is the fact that you have been born again by God. Now, people will make claims, and there are lots of people who we would say make these bold claims of authoritative nature, that we would look at their ministry, we would look at them in light of Scripture and see they aren't even born again. So we know immediately they're disqualified from the position that they're professing to claim because they don't even have the promise of eternal life within them. But he, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, was born again. We see that conversion on the road to Damascus there in the book of Acts. But he's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. How do you know? How do you know that you're called? Well, it's interesting. We don't have necessarily these Damascus road experiences. I was not, you know, driving my old... Um, Toyota Cressida, and all of a sudden a brilliant light shone round about me, and the motor shut off, and I crashed into a tree, and I was like, oh Lord, what's going on? Kind of thing. None of that. I got saved. I just knew that I think I need to preach the Bible. I was pretty confident I needed to do what these guys that I hear are doing. 
And so I went to Bible college and that call was affirmed over and over throughout my life as people would give me opportunities to preach and affirm the gift that I had been given saying, yeah, we do think you're called, you can preach, you can teach. And so I was given several platforms, but it wasn't those people that qualified me. They saw the qualification that was already there. God's the one by his will who calls God's the one by his will who directs. God's the one who by his will gifts. And he gifted Paul in this particularly special way. But it was all based upon the promise of eternal life. He reverts back to this. I love it because what he's doing here is he's basically saying, I am no better than you, Timothy. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, but my apostleship is only based upon my redemption. Meaning that anybody who's redeemed is at the same level, as it were, spiritually as the Apostle Paul. You see, his apostleship doesn't make him super Christian. All that does is proves that he's founded upon the salvation that's in Christ Jesus and eternal life in his name. So he's basically just saying, I'm a Christian just like you who happens to be called in this particular area. And we can all say that I am no better of a Christian because God has called me to pastor, to preach, to teach than any other Christian that's anywhere else, anywhere in the world. I'm on the same level as them. God has just gifted me uniquely and he's gifted them uniquely. He's gifted all of you uniquely and distinctly. So we say, okay, well, what are your giftings and how are you using them? How is that functioning within the context of our church? But we'll get to that. Apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. It's by God's doing. It's not by his own doing. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Timothy, my beloved child. There's a lot of Work and love and labor and prayer, especially, that goes into leading. Here, Timothy is his beloved child. He it looks, certainly looks like all the way back there in Acts 16. In fact, let's look at that. In Acts 16, he, he led them to the Lord. And in leading them to the Lord, it wasn't just somebody who he preached the gospel to. They got saved and... He went on and established other churches. But with Timothy, he ended up taking him with him on several missionary journeys. And then, of course, we know he leads him to pastor this church in Ephesus. But in Acts 16, beginning in verse 1, it says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, a son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. So his mother was a believer, but his father was Greek. His mother was Jewish. She believed in Christ. The father was Greek, apparently did not. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was Greek. 
As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them the observance, the decision that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in the numbers daily. So remember, Acts chapter 15, they had that great big first church council, and the debate was, do the Gentiles who convert need to be circumcised? Oddly enough, Paul was one of the advocates on the side of the uncircumcision. No, they don't need to be circumcised. They're Gentiles. God saved them as Gentiles. They need to remain as Gentiles. And then when they parted ways after that particular council, him and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, had that big falling out. Remember, and Barnabas took Mark along with him. Um, And then Paul took Silas. And the first place they go, they find Timothy here in Derby and Lystra. And they find him, and his mother's Jewish, his father's Greek, but yet Paul has him circumcised. Even though he was the biggest advocate against that, there in that church council. You ask why, right? I mean, that's an obvious question. It says here, because the Jews who were in those places all knew that his father was a Greek. The way Jewish lineage would come down is they would have seen Timothy as a Jew because his mother was Jewish, not the father being Jewish. So because of that, if he was uncircumcised, then what was being communicated is he was denying his Jewish heritage, embracing his Greek heritage, and now he's going to go about and presume to speak about the Jewish Messiah? In the minds of some people, there'd be a contradiction there. And so for Paul, he saw that as a detriment to the gospel being advanced to the Jews in this vicinity. And so he, I'm assuming with the agreement of Timothy, had Timothy circumcised so that there wouldn't be this hindrance. When they go out and they go and preach the gospel, that there isn't something, right? Paul said, to the Jew, I became a Jew. To the Greek, I became a Greek. Here, there's a good, clear reason why it would have been more beneficial for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom, for Timothy to have been circumcised. And Timothy submits to that. Well, no wonder Paul calls him a beloved child. Because he sees Timothy with this tender heart who cares about the things of the Lord so much so that he's willing to endure this physical trauma so that there is no longer any um, weirdness. There's no obstacle in the way of him preaching the gospel to Jew or Gentile. Now he has open access to wherever he goes to preach the gospel to people. That's, of course, endearing to Paul. But then as Timothy is with him throughout his ministry, and we see him coming up over and over and over again, in some of Paul's epistles, in one particular, he says, I don't have anybody who's as like-minded as Timothy. That's a treasure. That's a joy. I can imagine just Paul here as he's writing this very last letter. I mean, he, he probably knows death is imminent, but I don't know if he is ever going to see Timothy. We don't have it recorded if Timothy ever made it to him. And so I feel the passion and I hear in these few words, my beloved child, so much of Paul's heart coming out to Timothy. Oh, Timothy, I love you, my brother. I love you, my child. 
May grace and mercy and peace from God and from Jesus Christ always be with you, my brother. Always be with you, my friend. Always be with you, my dear fellow minister. Right? Do you hear that? Do you hear that passion he has for the Lord and his calling and the work that he's doing, but also for his dear friend here, for his beloved co-belligerent, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Timothy here, he's struggling. Now, we saw a little bit of that in 1 Timothy. Paul was a little bit more... um, that structured, he was a little more um, dogmatically precise in 1 Timothy than he is in 2 Timothy. And the reason is, is because there in 1 Timothy, he's in jail the first time. And he's writing to him to get things in order in the church of Ephesus. Not quite so much here. 2 Timothy is more of a keep on keeping on letter to Timothy. It's true with the Christian faith that our lives of faith, it's a marathon. It is a long, long trudge. It's, you know, I, I hear these stories about, you know, people who get in shipwrecks like in like uh, uh, Australia or something. And then they, they have to march for like 800 miles to get back to civilization. And you hear about all the things that they go through, all of the pain, all of the turmoil, you know, and then finally after like years of marching back through this just difficult situation, they finally get back. Christianity's like that. It's hard. It is not easy. There's plenty of enemies who want to assail us. Our own flesh doesn't want us to continue on and keep on. It is a long hard slog but christianity and ministry make it even more difficult ministry is difficult as well and ministry is for the long haul too and timothy here as we get into this epistle he gets he seems to be discouraged He seems to be frustrated. In fact, there's a little bit where if you read into, I don't want to read into it too much, but I kind of think Timothy's like, man, I'm not sure I'm ready to keep on doing this. And so Paul's writing this personal letter to Timothy to say, come on, man, I love you so much. We both love Christ. We both love the Lord. Keep on keeping on. Keep the faith. Keep on walking. And so he starts the epistle with these words in verse 3. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Thanks go to the Lord in his prayers night and day. There are some people. Now Paul says in all, I mean many of his epistles, I pray for you constantly routinely, regularly, right? Philippians, Colossians, both have that kind of language. And you you think there's probably a little bit of element of hyperbole there. Probably when he sat down to focus and pray his prayers, he, he would pray for the churches. But in his regular running thoughts as he prays throughout the day, probably they didn't always immediately go to every single church that he had planted or that he knew about. But I think it's maybe different with Timothy. Because... 
I'll just be perfectly honest. There are lots of people that I pray for regularly. But there's some more people that I pray for even more regularly. The congregation of Sovereign Joy Christian Fellowship gets way more of my prayers than anybody else in the world. Even though I pray for lots of other people. There are lots of other people that I pray for. But my mind, if it's... If I'm praying and I'm just like going through stuff in my head, it always goes back to you guys first. And then when I'm done praying about other things, it goes back to this church. It always goes back to you guys. And there's truth in that uh, when I say to you, I pray for you daily, it's multiple times a day. It's regularly. It's as I'm driving. It's as I'm sitting and thinking. It's something more you know cause me to remember and think about nick and you know i'll go all you know i'll pray for nick and things that are going with him just that's the same thing with everybody here so when he says i remember you constantly in my prayers night and day for timothy i don't think that's hyperbole i think he really constantly is praying for this individual that he really 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 loves and cherishes But one thing I want to go back to and just point out, I don't want to spend a whole ton of time on this, but he says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. This this is important, but he does throw it out there in passing. So I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on it myself. But he says salvation of Old Testament believers equals inclusion in the church. And that's the only way I can read that. I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, the same God, the same Savior. Now we can see this all throughout Scripture. A great place is Romans chapter 4. And if you want extra credit, you can read Galatians 3 or Acts chapter 24. But Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, it says, He received the sign, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. The whole point in this passage here is that Abraham, because he lived by faith before circumcision and he lived by faith after circumcision, can be the father of all the faithful. And here we, we know from other places in scripture that Abraham is also included in those who have been saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Old Testament believers are included in the church of Jesus Christ. They believed they were justified by faith just like we are, although their faith was more of a shadow than ours is. We have Christ in all of his full glory here in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, whereas they looked forward with the promises that God had given. But he serves them with a clear conscience. There's no insincerity in the Apostle Paul here. He serves with a clear conscience. That's a good motivation for those who serve, to do so with a conscience that's clear before the Lord. In verse 4, I remember your tears, and 
I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. That's not selfish on Paul's part. He longs to be filled with joy, and it's, it's like saying, you know, when I say to Andy, I love being by you. I'm so happy being near you. I just want to hang out with you. I could, that sounds like it's all about me, but you know it's not. And you know when somebody, if Andy were to say that to me, I just love being around you, I go like, oh, yeah, I love this. That's awesome. Right? It isn't selfish at all because the presence of those who you love when they're near you brings you joy and brings them joy as well. Just simply the presence of people who you love and know, especially in a context like this where tears have been shed when they've had to part each other's company and difficult times have come for Timothy and are going to continue for Timothy. Difficult times have come for the Apostle Paul and are going to continue for the Apostle Paul up until his death here. And so he longs to see them. There probably isn't a whole lot of joy there in that prison cell where he's at. But I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois And your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. There's much to be said for a rich heritage and legacy. I I have parents who believe right now. Um, um, My grandparents, I don't think do, did um, when they were alive. So I can't go back here and see this heritage like, Uh, Timothy had but I think that there are people who certainly can my kids will be able to look at back as they believe and trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior and see that their parents trusted in Christ and their grandparents trusted in Christ but some of you have believing family members who go back even further than that and there are lots of people who have believing family members who go back even further and further It's an encouraging thing to know that God, when he saves his own people, that he does a work through believing families. That doesn't ensure and absolutely guarantee that those family members who come, our kids will be saved. That's why we need to share with them the gospel and teach them important truths of the faith. But here, Lois and Eunice and Timothy all share the same faith. And he says this, In thankfulness for the faith, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now, the rest of the sermon is here in this particular text. Why? Why does Paul need to remind Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands? Now, I wrote down four reasons here. I'm sure there's more. But first of all, Timothy was ill. Timothy was ill. When you are sick, you are very much self-centered. When you are sick, it is very difficult to think of the positive well-being of other people around you. When you are sick, all you can focus on is the pain and the discomfort that you are in. So Timothy is ill, and it's easy when you're sick 
to think about, oh, I'm not going to do certain things and I'm not going to go out of my way in certain ways, shapes, or forms, but I am going to take care of myself, which isn't wrong. Timothy was told by Paul, take some wine for your stomach's sake. He's telling him to use this medicinally so he can function better. But you know that when you're sick, it's very difficult to focus on other people and function. Oddly enough, many, many, many ministers have been afflicted with certain diseases in the course of their lifetime, probably by the Lord to keep them humble and to keep them focused on the fact that they in and of themselves can't do it. Spurgeon's a great case in point. And he had all kinds of illnesses going on. But the Lord used him mightily. The second was that Timothy was timid. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 10. Paul says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. For he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. So why do you say, why would Paul say to the church in Corinth, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you? Because he's going to be anxious. It's going to be intimidating for him. Paul's sending him to this church, and he's timid. He has a hard time. Dealing with this position of authority. And so he's telling the Corinthians, put him at ease. Don't put him on blast. Make sure that you help him. Don't despise him. The fourth thing is that he's very young. We don't know exactly how young. Pardon me, the third thing. He's very young. It's probably at this point when he's writing 2 Timothy in his late 20s, early 30s. Somewhere in there. So when he wrote 1 Timothy, he was in his early 20s, maybe late teens. Somewhere in there. So he's still considered a young person. I mean, Paul, you couldn't even become a Pharisee until you were 40 years old. So that you, I would just be Pharisee for six years if I was in that particular boat, even though I'd been ministering for a long period of time. So older, wiser was very different. In our culture, people love youth. People think youth is the best thing, right? You know, you just want to think about the glory days, think about when you're young. Well, most cultures throughout history have not functioned that way. Most cultures have functioned in a way where they revered older people, where they revered the elders in their culture and in their society. Some cultures still do that today. And so in Paul's day, Timothy was very young. It would have been very easy for a lot of people to look down on him. And that would have been one of those doubts, you know, that he has in the back of his head, just as he functions and ministers. All right, they're just saying this because I'm young. Oh, they're just doing this because I'm young. And so that contributes to the timidity that he has. And the last thing that he needs, why he needs to remind Timothy of this, is the enemy was determined to get him. The enemy was determined to work against him. He had a determined group of people there in the church of Ephesus who were causing all kinds of division. We saw that as we went through 1 Timothy. And they're very determined. And he has to, in some cases, in some way, shape, or form, 
come at them very aggressively and very harshly. So he's ill, he's timid, he's young, and the enemy is determined against him. Those are, <laughs> one of those reasons is tricky. All four of them combined together, you can certainly see why there's a lot of trepidation when Timothy is being called to minister. It, it makes more sense now why he says in verse 7, God gave us a spirit of, not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Because any one of those four things and all the four things together certainly are an environment that's prone to have fear or to foster fear. So this is why he's reminding Timothy of these things. And he's reminding him to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. Now, I said earlier, everybody's been gifted by God. Everybody in some sense has been gifted by God. We all have unique bents, propensities, thoughts, likes, dislikes. We all have unique perspectives and we all have unique characters that have been built into us by God. Just in nature. Then when we're saved, the Bible says that we have been baptized into the church by the Holy Spirit, and upon that baptism into the congregation, into the membership of the church of God, into the kingdom of God, adopted into his family, he gifts his children to function within the church. So along with all of your natural bents and propensities and personalities, you have been supernaturally and spiritually gifted to perform certain tasks. So did Timothy. Here at this point, he was struggling, and he needed this call by Paul to fan that back into flame. Maybe that's true of you. So I was thinking as I sat back and wondering, okay, he, here, why is he so insistent to remind Timothy of this? And then secondly, what does it mean to fan into flame? What does that mean? I mean, I know what it means when I, you know, we had our old wood stove at our old house and I put the newspaper in there and I tried to build one of them pyramids with kindling, you know, so it's got air circulation going in the little wood stove. And, and then you get a spark going and you kind of have to do one of these things with some newspaper to get it going a little more, right? That's easy. But what is he talking about here spiritually? How do you fan into flame the gift of God that is within you? Well, I, this week, have been just reading, doing my normal through the scripture reading, and I was in First Peter. And I happened to find five things that I saw, oh, this is fanning into flame the gift of God that's within you, all from First Peter. So if you want to turn to First Peter, I thought this was helpful for me. Maybe it's just for me, but I think maybe it'll benefit you as well if you see these five things, because perhaps... It's time, perhaps it's the place that you need to fan the flame of the gift of God that is in you, just like Timothy did. Number one is preach yourself the gospel. How do you fan into flame the gift of God that's within you? Preach yourself the gospel. He says in chapter 1 in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. You see, he starts his epistle of encouragement to the believers in the dispersia by saying, Jesus Christ, the gospel, you've been born again to an imperishable, incorruptible hope. He has caused you to be born again. He's keeping you by his power. You need to hear that. The very first way that you can fan into flame the gift of God that is within you is by preaching yourself the gospel. Because that is exciting. That's invigorating. That's emboldening. If I'm born again and I'm new because of the work that Christ did for me on my behalf, then I have not only the authority, but I have the power that's given to me that he even used to raise Jesus Christ from the dead. And if that's true, if the gospel's true for me, then by all means, I can go out and I can do what God calls me to do with the giftings that he's gifted me. Because he's already done all of the, as it were, heavy lifting. He saved me. I am now his. I'm no longer my own. I am his. He is mine. He has called me. He has saved me. He has kept me. He will reveal to me in the last day all the glories that are mine, all the treasures that are mine in Christ Jesus. So first of all, by fanning into flame, the gift of God is preach the gospel to yourself. Secondly, live holy. Live holy. First Peter chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Therefore, based upon all the salvation that you have in Christ Jesus, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded and set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, be also holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We look to the Lord and we see, okay, I am his now. I am the child of his. As an obedient child, how did Christ live? And we desire to form our lives to the life that Christ lived. We want to be obedient children, not living in the way that we used to before we were Christians. Now, not all of us have that, you know, salvation in the middle of your teen years or your 20s or whatever it was where you got saved. Some of you have been saved for your whole lives and have walked with the Lord pretty much for your whole life. So it's kind of hard to think about what it was like living in your ignorance, as it were, as Peter uses the language here. But what it simply means is don't live like the unbelievers. Don't live like the way your flesh wants you to live. Don't live in the manner that is inconsistent with Christ and the way he wants you to live. So we look to Christ. We look to his rules, his instructions. We don't look to some other ways and forms. And, you know, there's all kinds of moralism out there that'll, you know, gets you feeling kind of good about yourself, but isn't actually biblical. So we're not talking about some kind of behavior modification or moralism. Holiness is, I love Jesus and I want to be more like him. 
I want to be conformed into his image. He is holy, and I want to be holy like him. What does Christ look like? That's how I want to be and how I want to live. So first of all, preach the gospel to yourself. Second of all, live holy. Third of all, pray. I imagine that if I were to go around the room and ask, how's your prayer life? That we would all of us say, yeah, it's not where it should be. And I I think, you know, to be honest, I think Paul might have even said that. He prayed continuously and regularly. But we never feel like we're, we never think we're praying enough, really. Honestly, we can always pray more. But 1 Peter chapter 4, in verse 7, it says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded, and... All of this for the sake of your prayers. Be self-controlled, be sober-minded, all for the sake of your prayers. Be focused. When, when you pray as best you can, focus and pray regularly and often. Uh, I, I use almost all of my downtime where I'm not talking with people in some way trying to pray in my head. And sometimes I need to even go off and get by myself and go pray. I've made it a habit. You know, we have a mausoleum at the place where I work, and it's kind of quiet out there. Um, So I'll go out there, and I will just sit off in one of the alcoves that nobody ever goes in and spend, you know, 15, 20 minutes sometimes praying if I can. You all don't have a mausoleum where you work, and you all don't necessarily have this perfect, quiet little pad where you can go off and you can go pray for 50. I get that. And so what it's going to take is it's going to take some discipline and self-control, just like he says here in the text, to make that time available for you to pray. So how do you fan the flame, the gift of God that has been given to you? Preach the gospel to yourself. Live holy, pray. Fourthly, love. Sounds simplistic, honestly, but look at the next verse there. 1 Peter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Keep loving one another earnestly. This is something that not only will fan the gift of God that is within you, because if I see you as valuable and important, and I genuinely love you as a fellow heir in Christ Jesus, and I love you in that way, then that's going to fan that flame within me. What stifles that flame, what suppresses that flame, what quenches that flame is when I don't see you in that way, and I become self-centered and introspective. And I think more about myself than I do other people. So love is a solution and a way that we can fan into flame this gift of God. If I love one another earnestly, love will cover a multitude of sins, but it will also motivate me to step out and serve. As he goes on and says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each one of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks, 
Whoever serves is one who serves. If you serve with all the, uh, if you serve by the strength of God that He supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ our Lord. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, being others focused will cause that flame to grow and to grow and to grow. So all of these things He tells us. There's these are. This is not exhaustive, but. He's certainly pointing out some important areas for us to focus on loving each other. And then finally, remember Christ. 1 Peter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in the flock. And when the chief shepherd, Jesus, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves in humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We remember that Christ is the chief shepherd. And what helps us fan these fires into flame is I have to remember how much does Christ love the rest of you? Enough that he died for you. You are you and you have become an object of his affection and his care. And if Christ loves you that much, then how much should I be extending that very same love? You see, all five of these things fan into flame the gift of God that's been given to us. Now, maybe you don't need all five of these in terms of motivation right now, but certainly all five of them are helpful. You probably could add to this list yourself, but preach the gospel to yourself, live holy, pray, love, and remember Christ. Why? Because verse 7, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. If we're going to serve in the church, then we need to be reminded that we are not given a spirit of fear, but we have actually been given power and we've been given a spirit of love and of self-control. Clear-mindedness, some translations say. So, he writes to Timothy these first verses. He encourages Timothy to fan this fire that he has into a raging flame which is the gift of God that's been given to him. And I hope that that is a challenge for each and every one of us here and every one of us who hears this, that we can think, you know what, God has gifted me. Am I using these gifts for his glory? And if not, Lord, use one of these motivations to help fan that flame in me so that I could serve you, not out of fear, not with a spirit of fear, but rather with power and of love and a sound mind. Lord, We pray that you would take these gifts that we do have from you, Lord, and that you would use them to glorify yourself in the life and in the body here of this church. We need you. We desperately need you. And we ask, Lord, that you would fan into flame as we think about you, your gospel, as we consider how to live holy lives, to pray as you did, Lord, regularly as you 
found yourself getting alone to pray and loving each other, all the while remembering you and that you are going to return sometime soon, Lord Jesus. We thank you and we praise you for your gift of salvation to us. In your name, amen.